With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out all the stuff you're missing, including um, uh, Haley Bird is finally writing for us on a regular basis, which is awesome. Um, so go check that out. And uh, I have a new G-File up uh, about religion and conservatism, which is a strange one, even by my standards. So you can check that out. Um, okay, so now we have a returning guest. I, I, I really need to get the stats. We need a spreadsheet. I don't think he gets his gold jacket yet. This is probably his third or fourth time. Five times he get the gold jacket. Um, uh, but uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fan favorite. Of the of in the spinal tapian sense of a, a very selective audience, uh, <laughs> we have uh, my friend and colleague from the American Enterprise Institute, Matt Continetti. Welcome back to the Remnant. Thanks for having me, Jonah. It's always great to be here, and uh, I need that jacket. It's getting cold. So. It is. It is. Uh, did your uh, did your wife get a snow day? I actually be clear. Your wife's a teacher, right? She well, you know, she is no longer a teacher. She uh, took some time to stay at uh, home. Um, oh, okay. I'm even sorry. before the pandemic, as it happened. Um, but my children actually go to in-person school. Um, we found a school uh, for them to go to, um, and uh, so they did get a snow day. Unlike all of the kids uh, who are uh, doing remote or virtual learning, um, right. because obviously the snow doesn't affect that. So my kids did get to enjoy a snow day yesterday. Excellent. Because the only reason I wanted to clarify about the teacher thing is it made it sound like your wife was young enough to get a snow day as a student. And I thought (laughs) the implication of a child bride was like unfair. So I just wanted to clarify that. No, no, no judge Roy Moore here. (laughs) Um, So uh, although we do a lot of judging of Roy Moore, that's different. Okay. So um, where to begin? Um, You've been writing a bit about the Biden administration and how it's shaping up, which is, I feel like it's one of those things as my pundit due diligence I need to do, be doing more of than I have been. Um, I just find the whole thing so blissfully boring that, um, <laughs> uh, I mean, Pete Buttigieg at, at transportation is just so anticlimactic. It's fantastic. But um, what do you, how do you think the uh, Biden administration is shaping up so far? You know, you don't have to give it a grade, but you know, whatever. Well, I, you know, I think it's shaping up to be Obama's third term. Um, I, I look at these appointments and many of them are exactly the same people who populated yeah. the first two Obama administrations. Sometimes, uh, like uh, Vivek Murthy at Surgeon General or, or Tom v, uh, Vilsack at Agriculture in the exact same jobs. <laughs> uh, so no change there. Then you have the weird picks like uh, Susan Rice, 
who instead of um, mishandling national security policy will now apparently be mishandling domestic policy. Um, John Kerry is back. Uh, He gets to fly around the world more and this time negotiate climate bargains with the Chinese, uh, which does not um, bode well. Uh, There's also, I think, the culture war politics. You know, I mean, the uh, Javier Becerra pick was very disturbing to me as a conservative. This is not the pick that you would choose um, if you were really serious about uniting the country or reaching out to Republicans. We're in the middle of this pandemic. Um, Becerra's has no medical experience. Uh, he has really no executive experience. He's been a legislator, and now he's for the past four years, he's been the AG of California. His real experience is harassing pro-lifers, uh, which yeah. he's done um, to excess as the AG of California. So that's disturbing. And it, and it fits the, the, the way that HHS was used during the Obama administration, which is really to kind of pick culture war fights uh, that benefited, or at least were thought to benefit the Democratic Party politically. And I have in mind the contraceptives mandate in particular, which was totally egregious. It was not written into Obamacare. The Obama HHS just decided to issue the regulation mandating um, contraceptive uh, coverage, including for religious organizations. And that, of course, um, set off the um, uh, really the uh, judicial persecution, in my view, of the Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, so, so that's a bad sign. And then, uh, you know, um, the other aspect that I've written a little bit about is I don't, I never bought into this myth that, um, you know, Biden won uh, he says he wants to be the president for all Americans, and so we're going to have this wonderful moment of la la unity. And okay, I, just to be it, clear, you you buy you don't think it's a myth that he won; it's the other stuff. <laughs> right, yeah, see, yeah, yeah. Right. I should clarify that at the outset. He won the election. He won the okay. popular vote. He won the electoral college. He will be our president. Um, one reason I've been writing so much about Biden is I simply want to try to convey that fact yeah, yeah. Uh, to my readers that he will be the president. Um, no, the myth is the national unity. I mean, we haven't been unified as a country since the 1960s. And if you look at, say, um, what um, his soon-to-be deputy chief of staff, former campaign manager, General Malley Dillon, said uh, yesterday, you know, uh, calling the Republicans efforts in an interview to Glamour magazine, that the Becerra nomination, it just kind of puts the lie to this idea that we're going to have a, you know, kumbaya moment in American politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, the 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 uniting America stuff has been one of my hobby horses for a long time. First of all, like. It's not the president's job to unify the country, you know, I mean, I don't mind him. I don't mind Biden trying because I think he's going to be so ineffectual and it's basically going to be like a geriatric Hallmark card kind of thing. And so whatever, it's not there. There are attempts to unify the country that I think can be dangerous. I don't think this, I don't think he's the one to do that kind of thing. Instead, I think it's just going to be bland and, and, um, and cliched, but I don't know. So when you say we haven't been unified since the 1960s, do you mean like faith in government was strong back then? It was strong. I mean, it surely was stronger back then. Um, you mean in the post? Kennedy thing because whenever I hear people talk about how there was, and I'm not saying that you're one of these people, you're night good and cynical like I am. Uh, but whenever you hear people talk about how we used to be unified, like when when exactly was that? Just not 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 
not the Shangri-La version of the past, but when were we actually unified and what were we unified about? Because I can, I, you can always find really good evidence that we were never unified in the way that people talk about this. Well, I think, I think if you do look at the post-war era, um, say, you know, 1945 to basically 1965, those 20 years, now the country may not have been unified, that is speaking of the population in general, but um, the American elite, I think, did kind of hold to a consensus of managerial liberalism or what Eisenhower called modern republicanism. Um, there was this belief among the elite, among the people who you know were at the top positions of government, the top positions in culture, that the government was the agent of social uplift and that there were problems we could identify them and government could ministrate to them. That consensus began breaking down in the, in the 1960s. And, and when it broke down, it also revealed much wider gulfs in American politics, culture, and society to the point that in 2000, we began speaking about red and blue America. And they are distinctive, uh, uh, I don't know what the plural, I guess they're distinctive ethics, right? Um, they, they, you know, uh, they, they might not be totally distinctive units, right? Uh, every state Every blue state has pockets of red. Every red state has pockets of blue, but they are um, uh, they are distinct ways of looking at the world. Different diff, uh, different set of values, um, and we see this play out again and again. It's been playing out for decades, and it continues to. Whether we're discussing the way that people are responding to the pandemic, whether we discuss what people's rank rank priorities, uh, how they rank priorities, and my illustration of this with regard to Biden is, look, I don't think it's any mystery why Joe Biden won the election. He isn't Donald Trump. It's that simple. Right. And that's, that's his, his mandate. mandate in fact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he doesn't think so. Oh, he doesn't think so. You look at these appointments, you listen, you read his rhetoric closely. His mandate is yes, to, to get us through the uh, pandemic, to help resuscitate the economy after the pandemic. But then he adds two other things. He adds combating systemic racism, and he adds, to me, the most superfluous priority of all, which is climate change. And when you look at how climate change ranks on the list of public priorities, it's always near the bottom. But for that blue America, for the, for the Biden coalition, for the, the Biden administration, it's near the top. And I think that just uh, goes a long way to, to showing, illustrating this gulf. Um, it's fascinating to me how much of this administration, you may be right, it might be completely ineffectual, how much of this administration will be devoted toward combating climate change, restructuring the economy, subsidizing alternative energy, cracking down on uh, typical fossil fuel industries and such. That will be a big, big priority. The other weird thing that Biden, um, that no one's really talking about, but Biden mentions again in almost every speech, this will be a labor-driven administration to a greater extent than I think Obama. Um, every single time Biden talks about his grand economic green energy plans, it's always union jobs. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at how he's going to basically, uh, all the scuttlebutt is, he's going to pick a, a teacher's union head, former teacher's union head, to run the education department. Yeah, just so disastrous. He's got to choose a union leader to run the labor department. You know, you're talking about regulatory capture. Um, this, the unions, I think, will be much more powerful in the Biden administration 
than they even were in the Obama years. Because, because you remember Obama's, um, Arnie Duncan, Obama's education secretary, was pretty open to charter schools. Yeah, but yeah, we, yeah. we have gone a long way. And to me, the idea that after the horror that parents have been put through with this pandemic, with schools shut down, not based on the level of COVID infection in their district, but based entirely on how powerful the teachers unions are, um, to then reward the teachers unions with, yeah. uh, to me is just um, distressing, to say the least. Although I saw something yesterday that Biden told the teachers unions he wants to be able to open the schools at the end of his first hundred days. Right, which works out to be, well, it works out apparently, if you do the math, to close to near the end of the semester. And at which point I'd imagine that a lot of schools, districts might just say, well, we'll start in the fall. So, Well, th- this is one of my great frustrations. You know, my friend Andy Smerick, you know, who's now at mm-hmm. uh, Manhattan Institute, he promised me that there would be this massive amount of innovation that that's what Americans are so good at and that the various school districts around the country would do all sorts of clever things and classes in cars and all that kind of stuff. And he insists it's happening out there, but I never see it in the news. All I see is, you know, the, the stranglehold that like the teachers unions in New York have over, you know, over everything. And I would, I would like to see, more of that kind, you know, more operation warp speed thinking, but for education, and we just don't see any of it. But I, I think you make a good point. I've been trying to think this through a little bit. You know, we were when you were mentioning about the elite consensus from 45 to 65. I think that's right. But the mere fact that it could be so torn asunder so quickly suggests that there wasn't all that much unity beneath the cloud city right. of elite consensus, right? But um, there's... The, the thing about climate change among the Democrats now is a perfect example of elite consensus on one side of the ideological spectrum driving everything. And when you're talking about uh, Javier Becerra being a culture war pick for HHS, which I agree with entirely, I think it's a very bad pick, probably the worst pick. And I would, I kind of feel like it, either he or Tandon or the ritual human sacrifice that we're going to get out of all of this, but we'll see. Um, but you know, the old rule as Ramesh always used to say is that the, that culture war stuff was good for Republicans at the poll, at the, at the ballot box and good for Democrats in terms of contributions. Um, and that the actual Democrats don't vote on the culture war stuff nearly as much as the donors write checks for it. And it seems to me that that's that sort of tension is hitting a bit of a breaking point right now. I mean, like with the with the um, the the Hispanics moving towards Trump in the last election uh, because someone was someone made the point that a ninety five percent Hispanic district, working class Hispanic district, actually doesn't think about identity politics very much <laughs> in the same way that a ninety five percent white working class district does. It thinks about all these other things, including cultural war things. Um, and I keep going back and forth about which of the two parties is going to collapse before it can fully switch its coalitions around. And for a long time, I thought it was going to be the Republicans. Then I thought it was going to, I should say for a really long time, I thought it was going to be Democrats. Then for the Trump years, I thought it was going to be the Republicans. And now I go back and forth because so much like even even all even this emphasis on unions is such a nostalgic understanding of what the labor force is because 
Most workers aren't in unions anymore. Labor force participation in ter- among union households has been plummeting for 30 years. And the union vote has been split, you know, pretty evenly between Republicans and Democrats, um, particularly if you think of things like non-government or non-public sector unions. So do you think it's possible that the Democrats can just get sufficiently out ahead on the culture war stuff and the identity politics stuff that they get a, they get a too far ahead of their own troops, as it were, and they lose their coalition before the Republicans lose their coalition with suburbanites and that kind of thing? Uh, you know, we talk a lot about backlash and we always forget the front lash. And, um, <laughs> you know, the front lash is real. And uh, it, so uh, that Hispanic district you mentioned, which is moving away from the Democrats because uh, Trump um, satisfied his promises on the economy, at least before the pandemic. And then depending on how uh, drastically your state closed down, even during uh, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, that's that's one reaction. The equal and opposite reaction is what I think we're seeing in Georgia right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think it's a real possibility Democrats will take both of those seats. Yeah. And it, it's because of, it's not because of Stacey Abrams uh, driving um, African-American turnout. It's because the suburbanites, the Bobos, are, are embracing kind of uh, this uh, progressive liberal social politics. Their values are different. Um, they they reject they reject entirely the values represented by the Trump coalition. Uh, that's the front lash. Uh, whether it, it's going to actually break down the parties, I, I'm skeptical. I, I think the biggest danger to the two party system is uh, structural, and, and that is if we are to eventually um, move away from the electoral college. Um, and whether that's through a constitutional amendment, which is very doubtful since the small states wouldn't like it, or some kind of workaround like you see with the natural, national popular vote compacts. Uh, that opens up the, um, the, the space for a multi-party presidential system, right? Mm-hmm. If you break off, and you, all you need is a plurality of the vote to win. You don't need the electoral college votes. Right. Well, um, you could see the AOC party and the Democratic yeah, yeah. parties. You could see the Trump party split from the GOP party. You could see a uh, Catholic party. So you much more European type political con- uh, dynamic. If the we Polish don't free beer party, which was one of my favorite parties. <laughs> yeah, in right. right. Uh, so, uh, so I think that it's the structural reforms that a lot of the progressives actually are trying to embrace as usual, without any thought of the unintended consequences. Yeah. Um, that that's what poses the, the the bigger danger, I think, to to the two party system. Yeah, no, no, I I I, I, I want to talk about this 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 point because I think it's a really good one. Uh, but just to be clear, I don't think we're going to lose having two parties called Democrat and Republican. But it feels like both parties haven't figured out how to talk to the actual coalitions that are their natural constituencies anymore because the FDR coalition is just coming apart at the seams and the white working class is moving to the Republicans. The suburbanites, which used to be the base, really, of the Republican Party are migrating, particularly female suburbanites, as also suburbia is getting more diverse and less you know, monolithically white anyway. Um, they're moving Democrat and the the way Democrats talk about race and culture war stuff, I don't think speaks to African-Americans the way it once did. I think it comes across as almost condescending. Um, And, you know, the fact that the, the, you know, the reason why Biden won is that the African-American vote, particularly the older African-American vote, 
which used to be synonymous with the left wing of the Democratic Party, is now the most pragmatic block in the Democratic Party. I mean, um, the reason why Gary, Nor- you know, Ralph Northam is still your governor is that a- African-Americans in Virginia were just like, eh, you know, we're not as worked up about this as, you know, as pajama boys are. It's just, you know, whatever, it's life. And so anyway, my point is, is that those two parties will still call, there'll still be a party calling itself Republicans and calling itself Democrats. But you could see how sort of like post the Goldwater loss, one party can fall on its face so badly by being asynchronous with its own coalition that the other party just scoops up so many disaffected voters and becomes a majority party for a while. Um, and so that's sort of what I'm getting at is that I don't think we're going to lose the two party system for that. But your point about the national voter compact thing, I think is a really good one. I think it, this, this tendency of the way we talk about the presidency as if people are running for a prime minister is this very weird urge inside the American electorate that they actually want to vote for a party and give it unbridled power, regardless of who the personality running is. And if you did the voter compact thing, you could get much closer to that. But one of the reasons why I'm much less anti-national voter compact than I am changing the constitution is that it would be very easy to fix if it turned out to be a disaster, (laughs) right? I mean, you could go for one or two cycles with the, you know, the, 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 the populist party, you know, running everything on a plurality vote and Ezra Klein and everybody saying, mm, gosh, that was a mistake. Let's get rid of that. If you do it with the constitution, re-amending the constitution, you know, we did it with prohibition, but it's hard. Yeah. And it's hard to even, um, amend the constitution in the first place since right. the, you know, the smaller States, uh, have no reason to, to, to want to move to a, a national popular vote. Um, yeah, I, you know, Michael Barone has that great description of the two parties. He says that the Republicans are basically the party of people who consider themselves in the mainstream of American life, but together don't actually constitute a majority. And the <laughs> Democrats are the party of the groups that consider themselves outsiders to American life, who are minorities uh, in particular, but together comprise a majority. And yeah, um, yeah that's the way Michael Barone uh, characterizes the two parties really since their existence. Um, and uh, I think it's a still a smart way to think about it. Uh, but you're absolutely right that um, at least for, for sure, the Republicans who I spend the most time studying and thinking about, um, it's, it's like, it, it, in this case, the metaphor is, um, is, is very apt. It is like, politicians trying to uh understand what the elephant is just by kind of touching different parts of it and they don't really know it's oh oh oh, are we a multi-ethnic working party now or uh, oh are we still the party of wall street because that's what we were for for decades and and they this they that together they really haven't kind of figured out what this thing the republican party is and that's why i think trump's post-election moves are so destructive because He's going out the same way he came in, which is by ripping the, the Republican Party apart. You know, he got once he came into office, he actually was able to stitch it together uh, pretty well. For various self-interested reasons among different parts of the coalition helped as well. But um, but now he's he is um, once again the chaos candidate and, and um, he's making that that uh, complex task of actually figuring out what the GOP is and how 
Republican politicians should respond, lead, uh, cater to Republican voters, uh, all the har- all all the more difficult. Yeah. So, what is your prediction? Pick a time frame: six months, a year from now. Um, what kind of hold do you think Trump has on the party? I get asked this question constantly. And I think the only honest answer is I don't know, but here's a guess, right? But what's your guess? Uh, I think he'll, he'll, he will last longer than a lot of people think. Um, I actually, I've written this um, for the New York Times and it seems to be caught in editorial purgatory, but I think to a large extent, Trump is really the only you thing. you call for martial law? <laughs> no, no. I, say, <laughs> I call, I, I, it's, it's, in a lot of ways, Trump is the only thing holding the, the GOP together. Um, yeah. And uh, so I think that will mean that he has uh, a pretty long shelf life. I do think, though, uh, the X factor here is Georgia. Um, if if the Republicans lose both those seats, at least among the Republican establishment, what little of it exists, uh, there will be um, a, tr- an attempt to, to move away from Trump as best they can, because I think a lot of people rightfully will see those losses as the result of, of the conspiracy theories of Trump's um, behavior after the election. Um, and, and so obviously, if you're Mitch McConnell, if, if you're Carl if Rove, you do not want to repeat that experience in yeah. 2022. Um, I want to get off punditry in a second, but you could make a case that the like like i'm trying to make I, i'm trying to make an argument i think kelly loffler is awful purdue is fine he's just sort of whatever he you know he is what he is he, he um, has won an election before i mean which yes, is that's right which is it actually says something yeah yeah he has a political he has political skill loffler looks like the you know the this the stepford wife android machine went haywire um, but, uh, she's so robot or maybe I'm in Haywire. Um, she's just so robotic and, um, Craven, uh, I would have a hard time pulling a lever for her, but I think you can make a case and, you know, that if you want to, from a conservative perspective, if you want to minimize the damage of the Biden administration or from a just sort of more patriotically grounded craving for a return to normalcy, uh, which, you know, may mean some losses for the conservative cause, but better for America in general. And people can do their own calculations on that. I think, I think conservatives and, and reasonable and other reasonable people can say that it would be good for America if given the choice between running for running a left-wing administration and a centrist administration, it would be good for Biden to run a centrist administration. And um, that's just infinitely more likely if Mitch McConnell is running the Senate, right? I mean, uh, and and so in that sense, I've been saying this for a while, you know, ever since Tim Alberta first pointed out to me, it would not shock me if you gave Biden truth serum that he actually wants the Republicans to hold on to the Senate because it gives him this ability to say to the AOC crowd, look, I mean, I, I'm with you. I'm totally want to, you know, uh, seize the means of production, but I can't, Mitch McConnell won't let me, you know? Um, do you think that Biden, do you think it's going to his head and Biden actually really 
wants unified control of government? Or do you think he has to do this stuff because he has to be seen as a good party guy in, in this election? Uh, I think he wants unified control of government. Um, yeah. I think he wants to pass legislation. He wants to rack up wins in the Democratic column. That's why people run for office, win elections, is to get legislation passed. It's also why I'm hoping that the Republicans do maintain control of the Senate. Um, I've seen arguments uh, that somehow there would be more deal-making in a 50-50 Democratic Senate uh, along the lines of the COVID uh, package that seems to be coming together as we speak. Uh, I'm not sure if that'd be the case, uh, but more importantly, from from my conservative point of view, a Republican Senate will simply stop bad legislation emanating from the House. And there are two pieces in particular that I think could still pass in a 50-50 Democratic Senate. There's uh, H.R. 1, which is the election bill, uh, which they've already passed in the last Congress, which would totally rewrite uh, the election laws federally. Um, And all the problems that we've had, uh, or at least all of the reaction to the mail-in balloting and all the differing, you know, um, deadlines and such that we, uh, that state legislators passed, well, that has universal mail-in balloting in, in HR one. And yeah. I think it could pass a 50, 50 Senate with Kamala uh, Harris's tie-breaking vote. I also believe the equality act from a social conservative point of view, which would really, re- um, just kind of liberate trial lawyers to go after um, businesses um, that are thought to uh, have discriminated against LGBT uh, Americans and also um, has uh, concerning language for religious institutions. I think the Equality Act could still pass in a 50-50 Senate. So there's just a lot of bad ideas emanating from Nancy Pelosi's house that Mitch McConnell would stop. They wouldn't take it up. Uh, and for that reason, I think it's in a conservative interest to still to still have uh, McConnell control the Senate, whether it's by 52 or 51. And just a note on Loeffler, it's interesting, like none of the four candidates running in these uh, runoffs are good. Weirdly, yeah. the, the, the best candidate is Warnock, but he's also the yeah. most ideological and I think the most, <laughs> um, uh, you know, most progressive and, and, um, and from a conservative point of view the most threatening, um, uh, because of his, uh, because of his politics. Um, and if, and he's going up against, I think we would all say probably the, the, the least talented candidate, which is, uh, which is Loeffler. So it's, yeah. there's all these weird dynamics and, um, well, again, uh, it's another parliamentary kind of situation, right? right. Where like, you're just asking people to vote for a party, not the actual candidates. It is funny. They're all bad candidates, but each in their own very distinct ways that if you could Chinese <laughs> menu, each right. of them, like, take the black pastor. That's good optics, right? But then yeah, you take yeah, he, he's smooth. He's, he's a very good ca- candidate. Yeah, but he's yeah. just ideologically bad from a conservative right. perspective. Um, all right. So I got to. All right. So you're working on this book about conservatism. We've talked about it several times. I'm very excited about to, to have it come out. Um, and uh, um, we'll get more of an update on that in a little bit. But so I got to. I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this. Um, One of the things that bothers me about the way both good faith and bad faith people talk about the right is um, they talk about ideological minorities or religious minorities or or people who have, when I say minority, I just mean subsets of the coalition. Um, As if 
they are fixed variables. Like, like talking about, you know, when you're talking about a population, you can put a hard number on the number of people who are Asian, right? Because it's like, a, that's a thing or blonde or left-handed or whatever. Um, that's a metric that you can measure. But then when people talk about the right, they'll talk about uh, evangelicals as if the individual evangelicals were born, were conceived in the womb as an evangelical, grew up as evangelicals, and that it is as hard an identity as skin color, or and, and I don't think skin color should be an identity, but you get the point, right? It, that, that it's this objective uh, descriptor of their identity. And you find the same thing when people write sweepingly about anti-communists or libertarians or whatever. And yet the simple fact is, is that when you meet a libertarian or when you meet an evangelical, they have a story. And it turns out that 10 years ago, they didn't believe this. And now they believe that. Or you look at the people who were Tea Party people. They, did, they weren't turned on or activated until something happened. And then they embraced a point of view. And then many of those same Tea Party people came to believe something else. And so the, I guess the question I'm trying to get at is we are now seeing with the conspiracy theory, theory stuff, a not just that there's always been the, the sort of John Bircher and further out there crazy conspiracy stuff on the right, but it's been fairly contained for the last 50 years, you know, since the, the late 60s at the very least, right? And then, um, and it would pop up after 9-11 and get a little more bigger, but it's basically contained. And now it's just, it's running full flower. I mean, we got, we got people saying that the demons stole the election. We've got people saying Hugo Chavez stole the election, you know, which I, some people may argue there's no distinction there. Yeah, they could be um, the same thing. Yeah, yeah so the question I, I, I have for you is, 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 is this explosion in the sort of paranoid style of the right which I have to always have to say there's a paranoid style of the left too. Um, this sort of, they're stealing our, the, the Colonel Jack Ripper school <laughs> of conservatism where, you know, our precious bodily fluids are at yeah. stake. Numerically, it just seems like a much bigger thing right now than it's ever been in my, my professional life. Um, do you think that's right? Do you think it's something that is a recessive gene sort of in the, the political ideological DNA of conservatism that can be, activated or do you think that these people always believe this stuff they just kept it in check in order to play well with others yeah um it's it's the supreme question right now i think a lot of uh, things are going on simultaneously um one is it's like the iceberg um the the conspiracy theory uh, people who believe uh, things that are not so that's always been a part of uh american politics and as you say the american right and um uh that that type of conspiracism is related to populism. Uh, it's it's long um, it's long lasting. It's always been there. So why is it now uh, above the surface? Well, a few a uh, couple things. The first is uh, the key text here is uh, Martin Gurry's Revolt of the Public. Uh, Gurry is a former CIA analyst who uh, really, by studying the Arab Spring, came to the conclusion that social media has completely transformed uh, politics. And that now the, the elites who used to mediate opinion and um, kind of uh, settle on specific lines or also be, have the ability to exclude far out opinions uh, were powerless because of the power of social media. And um, so the crazy can just subsume um, uh, attempts to control it. I think that's happening now. 
Um, the second thing is Trump. Uh, the, the second thing is, you know, it, Robert Welch was never the president of the United States. Yeah. You know, uh, and so I think one, I think one um, a couple things uh, the past months uh, have have communicated to me is, you know, a lot of uh, uh, Trump um, supporters would often say, well, look, it's just words. The mm. tweets are just words. The the offhand comments or whatever are just words. Don't look at what don't listen Style. to what he says. Right. Don't listen to what he says. Look at what he does. Well, in this case, what he has done is very bad because mm. <laughs> because he's spent two months filing all of these lawsuits that are frivolous and, and and don't actually have the evidence that they purport to have to have. And so he's sowing distrust in our elections. Uh, for his own reason, which is to um, uh, increase his personal hold over his following. Uh, and then the other thing was, um, you know, the Trump behavior, Trump's behavior, uh, supporters often said, is unique to him. It's not going to spread. Uh, he's such a unique figure and personality that it, it, he will always be sui generis. I think, again, what we've seen over the past two months is uh, not necessarily unique to him. Yeah. Um, and that the fact that of his position and, and power has um, made a lot of people um, uh, either imitate him, agree with him, or uh, believe the same things he does, or whether he believes them even is an open question, think the same things he does, make the same arguments he makes, but now they're rising to the surface. And so I think in the last year and and even more so in the past couple of months, you've seen the effect that Trump can have on um, on the GOP and 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 large parts of the conservative movement. That so I, I think between social media and the the, the figure of Donald Trump, um, it's become much harder to try to contain or ignore or marginalize a conspiracy theory and um, and what and nonsense in our political system. Yeah, I mean, th this is, um, you know, I'm not trying to acquire any new enemies. I've got a lot of them already. But, um, you know, the, the, I, the, 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 the effort by some people that we might disagree on individual personalities, but on the broad sweep of things, a whole host of people and institutions that fancy themselves as intellectual uh you know citadels of of intellectual and ideological seriousness who have credentialized and legitimized um uh the the craziness is a real problem for the right you know you, you to talk about how you know to, to you know the, the claremont motto is you know they're all about statesmanship well i mean under traditional understandings of statesmanship, I'm not sure you can just simply wave away all rhetoric <laughs> and all statements and just talk about, well, they got, you know, a tax corporate tax cut through Congress and the contagiousness of the crazy. Um, you know, I, I, I used to be driven to distraction by the people who were cynically buying into stuff that they didn't believe. I'm now more freaked out by people like Eric Metaxas who seem to actually believe what they believe. And, and it just shows how there is a contagiousness that you can understand where like, you know, madness of crowd type things, 
which is sort of which my point is where I was trying to set this up is if you read a lot of the the, the supposed historians of conservatism, they tend to take these moments and then turn the telescope around and say, see, these people were always like this. And I just don't think that's accurate. I think I'm perfectly happy to condemn the craziness that's taking over certain quarters of the right, but I don't believe that this is what the right has always been, right? And that is something you're hearing more and more from the left, is they just want to make an argument like, they've always been this crazy. They're just, you know, we're just seeing it now. And I, I don't think that's right. I think that, you know, and why it's, it's particularly useful to go back and read, which I've been doing a bit this last year, the arguments about McCarthy among people like Will Herberg and, and, and Russell Kirk and Buckley, obviously, and how they were all trying to figure out a way to be right on the issue, but also right on the man of Joseph McCarthy. And it's just harder because like you say, Jack Welsh wasn't president, neither was Joseph McCarthy. And so it's, and, and you had much stronger gatekeepers back then than you do now. Um, so I, I, I worry that, that, when the incentive structure is for a lot of right-wing media just to tell audiences what they want to hear, um, I'm very proud of how National Review has handled, you know, stuff of late and all that. But uh, uh, there, it just seems to me that we're going to continue to see a lot of right-wing institutions not only pander to but subsidize crazy talk for a good long time. And I, I don't know how you crawl back from that. I mean, give me some reason for optimism on that front. <laughs> well, I, I think you hit it on the head when you uh, shift the conversation to the institutions, uh, because it is the institutions that matter more. Um, it, take National Review, for an example. Um, uh, National Review um, uh, never really separated from McCarthy until decades, decades down the line. But um, in the case of the Birch Society, uh, it was a very complex uh, process uh, by which National Review finally came to the conclusion that um, uh, Welch was uh, a, a conspiracy theorist and that the Birchers uh, should not be part of, um, uh, of the conservative movement. And even there, there was always some room. Uh, if you look also at what Goldwater and how Goldwater and Reagan treated the Birchers, it was, well, I'm not, I'm not repudiating the people but I don't share their views. And so mm -hmm. anyone can join me and support my views is how Reagan often put it. Goldwater had his more acerbic version of this as usual, but, um, but I don't share their views. And so that was a way by which um, the, the politicians as part of this party could, could step away uh, from, from the extreme right. Uh, I just came across a quote from when Nixon, uh, during uh, the midterm campaign in 1954, uh, was kind of tasked with saying, you know, create distance between the Eisenhower administration, the GOP, and McCarthy. Well, of course, the way, again, Nixon did it was not that McCarthy was a fantasist or a, a, a bad human being. It was that he was ineffective. He was that he said that the, the problem is by spouting off on these uh, theories, uh, you let the real uh, communists get away get away with them, and so um, it, it it's a way that the institutions kind of move uh, gently uh, from the brink that I think is important. Um, the problem, of course, today is that institutions are weaker, and there are many institutions that are fine 
with uh, propagating uh, these falsehoods um, uh, for various for various reasons. And you know, again, conviction can't be dismissed because, as you say, there are people who really believe this stuff, even though it's it's in my view uh, false. Um, so I don't know how optimistic to be. I, I think I, I think it will be a, a drawn out process. I mean, there's no question, though, that when you study the, the history of the right, this is one of the key themes. To what degree can the right achieve res- respectability in the eyes of, of liberals uh, who make up the kind of cultural intellectual mainstream of America? Uh, or uh, or does the right move toward uh, the more ex- extreme elements, which I I happen to agree, have always been part uh, of the American right. It's just not always, for certainly not the most successful part of it, uh, because they, they tend to, um, uh, they just, they do quickly create a ceiling on how, on, uh, on, um, uh, on, uh, on political support. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, Ron Paul was always part of the cranky, crazy part of the fringe libertarian right. And if that offends the three Ron Paul fans who listen to The Remnant, I, I'm sorry to lose you, but I uh, was not a good person. And his newsletters were very bad things. But there was a reason why he had to do like essentially mimeograph newsletters is because he had no access to uh, mainstream media. Um, you know, like if if William F. Buckley said you were too crazy to be on firing line, you weren't going to get on meet the press except as some sort of, uh, you know, uh, carnival attraction to be mocked and ridiculed, but not as a serious voice for something. And so again, I'm open to the idea that a lot of the sort of fever swamp stuff has always been there and has been invisible. Um, and that social, I think your point about social media, making it visible and then, the anti-institutionalism of the moment where people say, who are you to say that their views are any worse than my views um, uh, kicks in, but they're, you know, it's almost as if their invisibility is like they were all using ExpressVPN. Earlier this year, more than 100 Twitter users got their accounts hacked into passwords, email address, phone numbers, and more all taken from high profile people like Joe Biden, Elon Musk, and even Kanye West, not Kanye. These kinds of attacks are getting more frequent and more severe. And it's not just Twitter. Facebook, eBay, Uber, Adobe, and Yahoo have leaked data such as passwords, credit card info, and driver's licenses belonging to billions of users. Look, if someone can hack Joe Biden, just imagine how easy it would be for them to hack you. And that's why you should use ExpressVPN to safeguard your personal data online. I use it, um, and you should too. According to recent reports, hackers can make up to $1,000 from selling someone's personal information on the dark web, making people like me and you easy, lucrative targets. ExpressVPN is an app that funnels your data through a secure encrypted tunnel so that no matter what device you use, you can have peace of mind every time you use the internet. The app connects with just one click. It's lightning fast, and the best part is ExpressVPN works on up to five devices simultaneously, 
so you and your whole family can stay protected. If a breach can happen to powerful individuals, it can easily happen to you. Protect yourself with ExpressVPN, the VPN rated number one by CNET, Wired, and countless others. And if you visit expressvpn.com remnant right now, right now, you can arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash remnant. Visit expressvpn.com slash remnant to learn more. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So uh, let's stay on right-wing eggheadery because you're like one of the only guys I regularly get to talk to about this stuff who at this point definitely knows more about it than I do. And, um, um, you know, and I still want to geek out on this stuff. So, um, gosh, I'm spacing. He's a friend of mine. It's just terrible for me to space both Mike and me. Anyway, there's a, there's a friend of mine who wrote a book. Um, and I will remember it by the end of this podcast and, 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 and insert his name back in, um, Mike Bowen. Aha. Okay, he wrote a book arguing that um, that basically the uh, birth of Goldwaterism versus sort of Nixon Rockefeller establishment stuff really had its roots in the fights between Taft and Dewey to take over the Republican Party, and that the um, the nostalgia with which certain sort of losers and in intellectual debates cast Taft as Mr. Conservative or Mr. Republican and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, there was some merit there. But part of his argument, if I remember correctly, was that um, the the rush to ideological conservatism was in some ways a way to come up with a face-saving theory for why they lost a mere inter-party factional fight. Does that sound plausible to you I and mean, I, I just it's something that i think is actually really interesting uh, how ideology formation is often less about upholding a lantern for what is true and right and more about coming up with a narrative about how my side lost an argument and the best example of this is actually i think foreign policy realism where everybody who says you know they claim they're a realist and what a realist really means is uh they lost an argument about what to do in foreign policy. And so they have to come up with a theory that those guys are ideologues. I'm looking at the facts as I see them kind of thing. Um, uh, but anyway, you know, does that have merit to you? What do you think about that? Um, it, it's an interesting argument. I, I'm not familiar with the book. I, I definitely need to, to look at it. Um, the, the, the Taft fight is really interesting. The sense of betrayal that was on the American right after Taft was denied the nomination in 52 was profound. He had actually won most of the delegates going into the 52 convention, but the Southern delegates, I believe, were stripped from him on a procedural uh, uh, move to allow Eisenhower to, to claim the nomination. And so there was a real deep sense of betrayal. And it was for sure one of the motivating factors behind the draft Goldwater movement, especially uh, after the experiencing uh, experience of the Eisenhower administration, which for many conservatives was too um, establishmentarian, um, not 
um, aggressive enough in fighting communism. Of course, Eisenhower played um, the key role in um, getting rid of McCarthy after, after McCarthy turned his sights onto the army. Um, so uh, the Taft uh, loss uh, and the, the famous um, speech by, I believe it was Everett Dirksen in the 52 collection, uh, convention where he uh, you know, uh, proclaimed to the supporters of Tom Dewey, you know, we've, you have led us to defeat before and we, we want an actual conservative here. Uh, and of course, uh, they get Eisenhower. Um, that sense of betrayal was real and a definite motivating factor. About the ideology, though, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, you know, American conservatism in the post-war era takes a lot from um, its antecedents uh, in terms of its uh, anti-statism, right? So um, uh, there were conservatives uh, uh, and business interests who were opposed to the New Deal uh, throughout the 1930s. And that kind of critique of centralization, bureaucratization um, persisted. Uh, The real difference between Taft and Goldwater was on foreign policy. And uh, Taft, of course, um, had opposed American entry into um, World War II. He was very skeptical, to say the least, about the NATO alliance. Um, and, and so by the time you get to Goldwater, Goldwater has a much more aggressive, forward, forward-leaning uh, posture toward c- combating the Soviet Union. Um, he's, he is fine with um, uh, alliances uh, and with uh, forward basing all these things that the more Taft conservatives uh, opposed. Um, uh, Foreign aid was one thing that they shared. Uh, uh, Conservatives were always opposed to foreign aid. Um, So I think think that there's some, uh, if you look at the people behind the draft Goldwater movement, uh, there was no doubt that um, they were attempting to avenge uh, the, you know, being denied the, the nomination uh, with Taft, but the ideology, it seems to me, has has deeper wells than simple uh, rationalization. That that there was um, that there was something deeper there, a sense that American life is being fundamentally transformed uh, by the New Deal. Um, that doesn't uh, that it that's kind of un, uh, detached from the actual partisan uh, concerns. I mean, just look at God a man at Yale, right? So that's fifty one before before the Taft loss. And uh, a lot of American conservatism is just prefigured in that book. I mean, um, a defense of traditional values, religious belief on one hand, and also a real advocacy for uh, the free market uh, on the other. Um, yeah, so I'm, I've always been more skeptical of the straight isolationist narrative that... Um, including of Taft. I mean, Taft, you're right. He was a critic of NATO, but he also promised, you know, total support for what was then called Formosa, right? Um, Which is now Taiwan. Um, And his views on, and even on the UN, I mean, part of his problem with the UN, if I remember this right, was that he thought it would undermine NATO, you know? So, I mean, um, and this whole idea that American isolationism, I mean, the, the, anyway, we can get into our conversation about isolationism in a second, but on the, 
the point, and, and I looked it up, um, the book was, by, again, my friend Michael Bowen, uh, the, Roots of Modern Con- the Roots of Modern Conservatism, Dewey, Taft, and the Battle for the Soul of the Republican Party. Right. Um, and I don't know if it's a book for everybody, but for Matt Continetti, it's got lots of minutes from GOP meetings in the 1950s. So like you may just not even attend Christmas this year because it's so exciting. Um, so, uh, um, I, I agree that it's never that, and I, I wouldn't want to argue this myself, that conservatism was just sort of a consolation prize for losing an intra-party fight. But I think the dynamics by which people grab onto ideological things as a way to give themselves, to solve their own cognitive dissonance, to bomb their egos, all these kinds of things, I think, I mean, just look at the, the BS about the election being stolen. I mean, that is a it begins as a way to bomb Trump's ego, to soothe Trump's ego about having lost. And very quickly it metastasizes across vast swaths of America as to say, no, 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 our anointed leader didn't lose. This Manichaean struggle continues. Um, and it is, is a conclusion that the, the, that they reach first and then they reverse engineer and rationalized to reach. And I, I do think that there is some of that in ideology formation that I didn't appreciate as much in my younger years that I, in part because I'm so alienated from everybody these days, I see a little bit more than I might have before. Um, but anyway, we, we don't need to dwell on that. Um, I can tell you're deeply skeptical. <laughs> well, uh, but you know, it just occurs to me what we're talking though. Um, it works, uh, the converse works as well and maybe for the american right is more uh apt which is that it's not working one's way back from the loss of 52 but you can definitely see a lot of people working back from the victory in 1980 which is to Mm -hmm. say a lot of people tell them form their ideologies their their dogmas around reagan's victory and and what he stood for and and or what he was thought to have stood for and um the path that the american and then there's you know kind of a history created about well what was the path right as george will always likes to say you know goldwater uh, actually won it just took 16 years to count the ballots right um and <laughs> you can ha- you kind of reverse engineer this story not right. necessarily from the loss but from but from 1980 and uh there i i i would i I'd be uh, highly persuaded about the role that that story plays in, in how people think um, of ideology. Yeah, I mean, just what would Reagan do was such a defining exactly. question. Yeah, or, or in 2012, generation. when they all said, every one of the, the candidates running for the nomination tried to cast themselves as the uh, inheritor of the Reagan mantle. Um, yeah, with- I always called that the C-SPAN version of Spartacus. <laughs> where everybody was like, yeah. I'm Ronald Reagan. No, I'm yeah. Ronald yeah. Reagan. You know? right. um, and my problem with all with that whole cattle show thing was they took away the wrong part of Ronald Reagan. You know, Ronald Reagan didn't actually talk that much about being a conservative. And he told stories that appealed to people regardless of their ideological affiliation. They didn't talk, he didn't talk about ideological purity, except maybe to like CPAC audiences or whatever. But um uh, and the worst part was the way like Ted Cruz and these other guys would read their stage direction where ra- sort of like when Bush did his message, I care, 
right? Um, or my favorite, this is Bush one, my favorite, which I talked about a bunch was when David Duke won a primary and Bush one came out and gave a press conference where he says, I want to appear as if I am distancing myself as much as possible <laughs> with David Duke. You know, and it's like, that's the right thought, but you're not, that's your stage director. You're not supposed to say that part out loud. Um, but like Ted Cruz would just say, I'm the optimistic one, right? <laughs> Which is different than actually being optimistic is like, you just don't, Reagan was optimistic. He didn't talk about, I am optimistic. He showed optimism. And that was, I think, in many ways, a precursor for how we got Trump was it was so much tell and not very much show from a lot of Republican leaders. Um, Matt is nodding for listeners out there. Uh, sagely nodding at, at the, the... As I do diuretic. always when Jonah speaks. That's right. Um, so all right, I'm going to take one last stab at explaining my, my point because I think it, I, I did a bad job on it. Um, I have this theory. I talked to Carlos Lozada about it recently um, about bad books. Um, there's, uh, if you go back and you look at The Promise of American Life, it's hard for me to judge Promise of American Life because the writing style was so different back then. But I think by modern standards, it's a bad book. The tough Not just one. the ideas, yeah. but the actual the writing. Um, uh, or the I think anything that John Dewey ever wrote is terrible. It all reads like it was poorly translated from the 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 German. Um, but uh, uh, Charles Reich's uh, The Greening of America, awful, tough. terrible, book, Another, yeah, right? hard, hard going. <laughs> and, and, yeah, but there is something about certain books that capture a moment or in the zeitgeist or a feeling in the zeitgeist and they become sort of totems for ideas that already existed on the ground and i think there's a role of that in ideological stuff like road to serfdom which i think is better written than anything i just mentioned but it's not by any stretch hayek's best book um it just sort of grabs a moment and crystallizes it and gives people something to wave around and say see this is this is what i I've been saying all along. And I think there's some of that in ideological formation as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That you're kind of looking for, um, uh, ground to anchor your beliefs. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I can, I can see that happen. I think, um, you know, one interesting dynamic in the history of the American right is, uh, this interplay between, um, description and, um, and, and prescription, which is to mm -hmm. say, you know, a lot of um, right-wing politics in America, conservative politics in America just happens. It, it, you don't really know what is going to set um, a, a revolt, a public revolt off. Um, but usually it's a decision by bureaucracies or judges, and, and that leads to a groundswell of opposition. Um, and then there's a simultaneous track of kind of prescription of intellectuals trying to think no or say this is what this is what we actually believe this is what it means to be conservatism and so you have right. russell kirk with his endless lists uh, of um what it means to be a conservative even though what it meant in for a lot of people in real life was well we're supporting mccarthy and his crusade to uh expunge communists from the government um or it means uh we're for goldwater and uh, uh, that means, you know, I, I'm here not to pass laws, but to repeal them. Um, and with Goldwater and with Reagan, there's a lot of overlap between the uh, prescription and the description uh, because uh, they were ideolo ideological politicians. But then there are moments where 
the, what the intellectuals are saying uh, just doesn't quite track on um, on what's, what's happening on the ground. And I happen to believe that the Tea Party moment is one of these instances. Is that uh, uh, you, uh, me, our friends, we're talking about this great revival of constitutionalism and what this means about constitutional conservatism. And that was picked up by some politicians. But for a lot of Tea Partiers, it was just simply stop. It was just, just stop, stop spending, stop taxing, stop telling me how to live. And that's all. And, and so it's a danger, I think, for intellectuals to assume that, that the way that we're um, prescribing conservatism should work is the way that it actually is working on the ground. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden, oh, Donald Trump is the president of the United States. And that was not, that's not actually how we theorize these things should work. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. That's a good, that's a good point. It's, there's an is-ought problem, right? You Definitely. Know? Um, all right, so you wrote about uh, what Biden could learn from Nat Glazer, yeah. which is uh, an interesting title. It's a bank shot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what we call a yeah. bank shot in the punditry business, yeah. Uh, so why don't you explain briefly who Nat Glazer was um, and, uh, um, and then briefly explain what Biden can learn from Nat Glazer. So, uh, so this is an essay I have in the January 2021 20, uh, issue of Commentary Magazine, and it's an adaptation of uh, an essay uh, that I wrote uh, over the summer uh, for this volume that AI put out that exists online. Um, it may also exist in hard copy, though I haven't seen it, um, called uh, Governing Priorities. And the mission of Governing Priorities, our assignment, um, there was, I think, 12 AI uh, fellows who were involved, um, was to kind of provide advice um, to the next president, not knowing when we were writing who the next president would be. And since I'm not a policy wonk, um, uh, I wrote a, a, a long essay about how an earlier thinker dealt with similar historical circumstances. Um, not so much of uh, the pandemic, um, but the uh, upheaval that we saw in our cities over the summer, um, the um, a moment of creedal passion is Sam Huntington's phrase um, that has motivated so many young people, in particular, to um, to rally behind the cause of racial equity and social justice. Um, so, how did an earlier thinker deal with uh, an earlier moment of what, to my mind, is uh, radicalism, and what lessons are there for? Joe Biden. Um, the thinker I chose was Nathan Glazer, or Nat Glazer, um, the sociologist. Um, he was, for a long time, the co-editor of The Public Interest with Irving Kristol, basically from 1972 until 2005. He replaced another of their friends, Daniel Bell, in 72. Who was much crankier than... <laughs> yeah, and, and much less neoconservative. Um, Glazer was always uncomfortable with the label neoconservative, um, certainly as he got uh, older, um, but he is identified with the movement. Uh, he knew Crystal, um, Irving Crystal, uh, for a long time. They met uh, while they were, uh, were employed at Commentary Magazine after the war, I believe. They may they have didn't known, meet they, you know what? They may have, they may have yes, I, I, I'm staying corrected. It was Alcove number one. It was at City College. They met in, they met in college, yeah, and then later reconnected. 
Um, uh, and so uh, Nathan Glazer was a sociologist. Um, he wrote many books, all of which I recommend. But for me in this essay, uh, to make a long story short, I wanted to look at the way that he handled the student revolt uh, that happened um, uh, at Berkeley, where he was teaching in the 1960s, and how that basically um, motivated him to relearn a lot of the responses to radicalism uh, that he had forgotten. Uh, you know, uh, as we said, uh, he met Crystal and Bell and, and others at City College in the 1930s when they were all radicals. Um, they were all uh, Marxists of a stripe, typically um, Trotsky, uh, so anti-Stalinist Marxists. And they all became de-radicalized uh, over the following years, some much more quickly than others. But by the time that, uh, say, Glazer uh, and Crystal were working at Commentary, uh, in the late 40s, neither neither of them were uh, Marxists. And so the 60s, the student rebellion kind of forced Nat to uh, reformulate um, his positions vis-a-vis radicalism in a way that he hadn't thought before. And I think it's important for us to do the same thing now. Why is it that we are opposed to the type of radicalism that we're seeing in America today, the, the type of radicalism that um, leads to violence or vandalism or tears down statues. Um, the type of radicalism that leads to, um, say, uh, major uh, impositions of uh, ethnic and racial quotas, um, not only uh, governmental, but also uh, in the private sector now. Um, and, and I think by studying Glazer's thought, we can, we can kind of come to some of those answers by by recognizing that radicals are often have an insight about what's wrong with our society, but instead of limiting their critique to that insight about that one problem, they then decide the entire society <laughs> needs to go, right. needs to go. You know, every name needs to be changed. Every aspect of our history needs to be written. Uh, and that's not the case. And then, the, uh, you know, another problem is um, I think radicals often see uh, the need for justice, and there is a need for justice, but by putting justice as the supreme value, they very easily um, forget that you know justice has to be balanced against order and against peace. It's not the only thing that we value, and you have to kind of uh, negotiate these elements very carefully. Whereas radicals just kind of go full steam ahead. We need justice. We need it now. No justice, no peace. Right, and then of course with Glazer and all of the neoconservatives, there's this deep insight into the unintended consequences of social action, that uh, we may think we have the solution to a problem, but more often than not, that solution not only will fail to uh, rectify the problem, it will create additional problems. Right. And so unknown, rather than, unknown, yeah. Exactly. And so rather than thinking of problems we have to solve, we need to begin thinking, uh, thinking of conditions with which we have to cope. So th- it's a long explanation of what is a long essay <laughs> in commentary that I hope that I hope everyone reads. Yeah, no, look, I, I, uh, so a couple things. One, I knew Nat Glazer a little tiny bit, uh, met him a couple of times. I put him on, when I was a producer of this television show called Think Tank, we put him on because he was a beautiful writer. And, and uh, it was one of the enduring lessons I got about being a television producer was, Go look up 
previous television appearances before you put them on your TV show because as a, a, a scintillating television presence, he was not. He was working on a cold and sneezing and coughing and doing a sort of, uh, what was the scientist that Jerry Lewis used to play kind of act? It was, it was not great. But um, I, I love the guy. And as you know, I'm a neocon history freak on all this stuff. I would say that the, I, I'm not, look, I, obviously I agree with you. If you were of the left and you were talking about how radicals produce pursue justice at all costs, I would get into a philosophical argument with you because I don't think that's the right, I know what you mean by it, but, uh, you know, this idea that justice and order are at odds in the classical liberal view, I would argue that justice is order, <laughs> you know, and that order is impossible without justice. And, um, and so often what the no justice, no peace crowd is doing is either they're talking about social justice or they're really just talking about, you know, redistributive politics. or they're talking about vengeance, which is a different thing. You know, I mean, we use justice and vengeance as synonymous. I demand my justice, but sometimes justice is that your vengeance is not satisfied. And, um, uh, but Glazer is sort of one of these perfect examples of my, which we talked about the first time you came on, so we don't need to belabor it and people should go back and listen. But, um, the redefinition of neocon as this foreign policy hawk thing, or, or even just extreme right winger, or do we, and even to a certain extent, right winger, <laughs> um, is belied by the fact that like, you know, the neoconservatism of Matt Glazer and Daniel Bell and, and, and Irvin Crystal, whether they all adopted the label or not, doesn't matter. Um, was rooted in this skepticism about big sweeping great society stuff. It was rooted in this notion about the law of unintended consequences. And it was rooted in, in, in domestic, pu boring public policy stuff. I mean, I got stacks, I got stacks of public interest right here. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's no foreign policy in any of them. And it, a lot of it is about like, you know, the health and human services department, you know, what price freedom or whatever. Um, and, uh, the, and Glazer, who was a liberal, um, I shouldn't say he was a close, more of a sort of a vital center liberal type, right. But deeply skeptical about what government could accomplish. Um, that's the kind of conservatism that I, I feel like is most required of this moment in 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 our politics is just this sort of reality based serious let's actually look at the data um approach to politics i love the grand theoretical stuff but everybody is doing that and a lot most of the people doing it are very bad um and very few people are just actually saying you know let's 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 look at what we can reasonably expect from government given how much it takes in how much of debt it has um, what has worked in the past and, and have a grown up conversation. And it just doesn't feel like there is a lot of space out there for grown up conversations anymore. No, uh, you know, and, um, this is one way that the neoconservatives influenced, um, the Reagan administration, uh, and even the Republican revolution in Congress in 1994, helpfully, which is they had an institution, like you say, the public interest magazine founded in 1965, never a large circulation publication. In fact, Irving Kristol didn't want it to be uh, a high circulation publication. But he always said that if we had more than 6,000 subscribers, we're doing it wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> which is 
similar to my philosophy of the remnant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> devoted, devoted though to exactly what you're saying. Uh, quarter after quarter, um, accessible. You know, rarely yeah. are there footnotes in the public interest, but but serious uh, work, um, and that helped shape the tax policy of the Reagan administration that helped shape the social policy of not only the Reagan administration, but also eventually the welfare reform in 1996 crime policy, uh, that was put into place in the 1990s and even in late eighties. Um, if you look at the successes, the domestic policy successes of the conservative movement, a lot are drawn directly from the pages of the public interest. And so that's why it's important to have these kind of, um, for lack of a better term, elitist uh, publications that are just kind of devoted to working through, well, what actually does it mean to be a conservative in our set of circumstances? And not even, actually, let me revise that. They didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what was conservative or what wasn't. Right. They wanted to know what worked and what didn't right. work, more importantly. And, and one, of the, one of the things that um, the public interest did was basically show that a lot of liberal ideas just didn't work again and again and again. So in this way, it is kind of um, related to the essay because I think, it, right, I mean, Joe Biden, um, radicals, I think need to relearn the answers for the left, but the right also needs to relearn some answers too, which is um, we need to, I think we need to be better at explaining why left-wing programs fail. You know? Right. Um, and, and, and instead of just kind of moving very quickly to kind of the latest outrage, you know, uh, the latest culture war incident, um, why is it that, um, why is it that the solutions on offer from the American left will not work, will lead to not only less freedom, but, um, to more, um, kind of conformity, regulation, everything, less, less, um, quality of life. Um, that's, that's the type of case that I think we need to, that we need to recover. We're very good. And, you know, incidentally, like national affairs, kind of the spiritual successor to the public interest has tons of ways forward, you know, but, but kind of litigating the case against, uh, is something that the public interest did very well. And and I think is necessary now, especially given that we're going to have another four years of a democratic administration. Yeah. I mean, um, so I used to go have lunch there all the time at the PI back when Vin Canato, Ira Carnahan, Jason Birch was there for a while. Um, and you'd see Irving in his office smoking cigarettes, um, kind of talking to himself, but in a charming kind of way as he was working through an argument, smoking a cigarette, sometimes talking to himself in French, uh, <laughs> and with a big legal pad as he was working on his wall street journal things. And, um, when we see our colleague Yuval Levin working in national, doing national affairs, which is now run out of AI, which is great, um, you don't quite see the same thing. Um, and maybe that's because the building is no, has a no smoking policy. So maybe he's using Lucy gum. I use it. I find it, uh, really useful, um, to sort of put off, uh, smoking cigars when, uh, I just, fall into habit and don't really need to do that more. Um, uh, I never really smoke cigarettes, but if I did, I would be using this to quit. Um, 
Lucy was researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. I've got the cinnamon right here. And I took some before, I, I chewed some right before we uh, started this podcast. Uh, but because I have manners, I do not chew gum on the podcast. Uh, Lucy also has a lozenge, lozenge, which I find very difficult to say sometimes, with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor. Each and every flavor actually tastes great. It's true. And it's convenient and discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere on flights, at work, on the go, even in the gym. So it's 2020. Get rid of your cigarettes. Unplug your vape. Throw out your dip and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. For remnant listeners, go to lucy.co, not .com, .co, That's lucy.co, and use promo code DINGO to get 20% off all products, including the gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co, promo code DINGO. Also, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Lucy.co, and be sure to use that promo code, DINGO. We thank Lucy for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Yeah, so you, you brought this up and you wrote about this recently. Um, this is a recurring theme on this podcast. Of, um, of Before I get to that, uh, you mentioned something about how the PI regularly um, spent spent a lot of time pointing out why things were wrong, and it occur it it, it occurs to me you know when you said that conservatives used to care or the neoconservatives cared about what works you know that's a mantra for for a lot of sort of liberal left types is you know we just want to do what works let's move beyond labels and all that kind of stuff, and I have deep and abiding problems with a lot of that. This is, has roots going all the way back to philosophical pragmatism and it's a lot of it is bs but at the same time i want the government to do what works so long as it fits within you know the 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 guardrails of you know classical liberal theory and all the rest but i think that one of the things that the pi and national affairs and conservative scholarship generally highlights is that there is something that it is very important to be a small C conservative when you're doing social science, because if you want everything to work, if you want to validate the role of government and everything, you will find evidence for it. Your confirmation bias will get the best of you. But if you have that sort of light cynical touch that someone like Irving has, which just assumes that government's going to screw it up, um, your threshold for evidence is just going to be a bit higher. And the stuff that actually persuades you probably actually does work, which is why a lot, a lot of the stuff that James Q. Wilson proposed was right about what works because it, it took into account, among other things, human nature and whatnot. But it also worked from the assumption that most public policy will fail. Um, and I think that's it's an important point to keep in mind because there's in this sort of age of, you know, uh, sort of, where science is becoming the new spiritualism for some people, you know, like science will solve all of our problems. Um, realizing that social policy stuff is not science and that often the, the stuff doesn't work 
And it's an important voice for conservatives to have that I just think that they're not doing a very good job at. Um, okay, so I wanted to ask you, um, it's been a theme on this podcast for quite a while. One of the one of the canons of this is why we got Trump is that conservatives always lose and that conservatives have lost for the last 40 years and haven't conserved anything and yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, and you wrote something recently pointing out, no, there's actually been, you know, a steady stream of successes for the conservative movement over the last 40 years. Why don't you just run through some of them? Yeah. Uh, this is my piece I have in the 65th anniversary, uh, issue of national review. And I was kind of, I was kind of given the, what to me, uh, complicated task. They said, uh, Matt, defend the conservative movement. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the piece I have is a partial defense. And also I get into some of its problems, but, um, but yeah, the main brief for the defense is that if you judge it uh, by the baseline of, say, 1955, when National Review was born, um, the conservative movement has had a tremendous success. The foremost success was conservatism supplied the policies and the rhetoric for the eventual demise of the Soviet Union and the victory in the Cold War. And it's very easy for people to forget just how big a victory that was. I mean, we're so far removed now from the fall of the Soviet Union. It's it's easy to to neglect. And for many young people in particular, it was never even an issue. So why should we care? But the way that American conservatism understood itself uh, for most of the 20th century was anti-communist, opposition to communism. And the conservative movement uh, through um, uh, intellectuals uh, around National Review, around Commentary Magazine, uh, were able to basically supply the arguments that helped contribute to the Reagan policies that I believe pushed the Soviet Union over the edge. No question, the Soviet Union had grave internal problems, but I do believe Reagan was that X factor that helped push it over the edge. So that's number one. Uh, then there are some policies that I mentioned um, uh, earlier. I mean, uh, crime for example. Now we're in the kind of the backlash to the uh, criminal justice reforms, uh, the tough on crime policies uh, that were um, imposed in the 1980s and 1990s. But again, you have to remember the baseline of just rising crime rates, a sense of personal insecurity uh, throughout much of the second half of the 20th century. And it was the work of people like uh, Jim Wilson and George Kelling that basically led to things like broken windows policing, uh, and more importantly, even community policing, uh, which is involving police officers directly in the lives of the communities, rather than kind of on these kind of um, crime specific, wait until the, the citizen calls you up uh, type policing, which predated it. Um, welfare reform, which I mentioned earlier, is another huge victory. Uh, really, the, the the biggest change to the American welfare state, uh, biggest restriction of the American welfare state um, since its inception, turning welfare into kind of a um, just uh, standard benefit uh, that came without uh, any requirements into a work requirement uh, benefit. That, that too was uh, important. There were some economic policy victories this is a little bit harder um, to point to one thing because, of course, government has grown um, uh, and continues to grow. Regulation continues to increase. But 
conservatives, by taking over the Republican Party, have always kind of served as a break on that growth. And I think we should acknowledge that, you know, it's, it's, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And finally, um, uh, perhaps the most important domestic, domestically has been the conservative legal movement um, that born out of a reaction against the Warren Court in the 1950s, developed in the 1970s uh, through the scholarship of Antonin Scalia, Robert Bork, um, and others, uh, Alexander Bickel, um, uh, and then turned into, in the 1980s, an institution uh, via the Federalist Society, via the Reagan Justice Department, that basically has transformed the legal culture of this country and culminated in the um, seating of uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, uh, and now a majority of the Supreme Court are members of the Federalist Society. Um, John Roberts, it, it, it like it changes by the day whether he wants to acknowledge he was a member or not. So I don't necessarily count him. <laughs> but we now with Barrett have five uh, members of the conservative legal movement on the Supreme Court, and a stunning achievement. And and by the way, one that maybe may disappoint some people because one of the theses of originalism is it doesn't lead you to the policy result you may want as a conservative. Right. And there are a lot of people who wanted or expected conservative originalist judges to somehow nullify the election, but they stuck to the law and the evidence just was not there. So it may seem like a loss to some, but to me, it's more evidence of, of the victory of, um, of the conservative legal movement. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all those. It does. One of the things that does stand out is how much of conservatism is really playing the role of, as you put it, break on liberalism, right? Yes. And um, uh, the, I mean, I would add, I, I'd have to look at what the state of gun policy was in the 1950s, right. but. You know, the country, if, if you if you take Second Amendment seriously, the country is more respectful of gun rights than maybe any time since in the 19th century. Um, again, I don't, I don't know enough about like mid 20th century gun policy, but I kind of feel like um, that's true. It's well, certainly true. Go back to the 1990s. I mean, um, yeah, it's certainly true since the 90s. Yeah. yeah. I mean. um, and but I mean, the big example is obviously uh abortion where you wouldn't have the pro-life worldview or the, the pro-life position be so central to conservatism were it not in res but for the response to something that liberals did right i mean there would still be lots of pro-life conservatives but it's only an issue that you you only get it's like the sand the irritant that creates the pearl you only get the pro-life movement in response to something like roe v wade and, um, uh, and so it's kind of interesting to try and think about what things that weren't reactive to liberalism that conservatism did. And I, I wouldn't want to just go off the cuff about it because I'm not sure it's the right question, but it's something interesting to think about. Yeah. Do you think though, that there is a replacement? For, I mean, uh, you know, it's such a cliche. Uh, you mentioned it in the piece. Doesn't, I don't mean that as an insult. It's just some cliches just happen to be true. Um, that anti-communism was the, 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 the tie that bound together the right. Um, are we just heading towards the crack up because 
this is the long tail of the end of communism. Um, do you think anti-China stuff can serve the same role? I kind of, I'm skeptical about that, but maybe you think otherwise. Uh, I think it's uh, conservatives will have to make it, um, uh, make the case for the People's Republic of China as a new Soviet Union. I think we're actually beginning to see parallels. I mean, if you look at the Swalwell story, if you look at even aspects of the Hunter Biden story, the idea of subversion, uh, communist subversion is alive. Uh, now, we don't think of it in, in terms of communism because it's China and uh, China is supposed to have reformed itself beginning with Deng Xiaoping. But the truth is today's Xi Jinping's China is actually much more like Mao's China than it is Deng Xiaoping's China. That is, Xi Jinping backslid. He is a Maoist. He is a communist. He is reserting his control over that economy. Um, so I think there's every reason to view it as a communist threat. Um, but I don't think we're not quite there yet um, that it becomes, as Buckley called the Soviet Union, the harnessing bias. Of, of the movement. Um, you know, uh, I, I've come across this uh, Brent Bozell argument recently. He wrote it in 1968 when he was breaking off from the conservative movement, and he was using these criteria to, to explain why, in his view, conservatism failed. But he gave basically four unifying themes of conservatism, uh, which I actually think stand up. I mean, one was um, anti-communism, right? Uh, one was constitutionalism, uh, which we see in the conservative legal movement. Uh, a third, which uh, may um, may provoke you, may trigger you, Jonah. The third was nationalism. That's what he put it. But uh-huh. we'll leave that aside. The fourth was anti-statism, which I think is an interesting way of thinking about it. And it seems to me that a lot of conservatives are unified by an anti-statism, but not necessarily on um, economic policy, though that 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 exists, but also in uh, anti-state interference in social life, you know? So mm-hmm. I think actually anti-statism can remain the grounds for a unified conservative movement. Um, but when I see, I, when I see elements of the right, the American right breaking off from that anti-statism, uh, that's when I become, uh, concerned. But, um, on your other point too, about when, when is it, when is conservatism not just a break? I think that's a very important question. And there are a few policies, I think, that we can see as innovations, um, for better or for worse. Uh, Supply-side economics, for example. Mm-hmm. That was not, that sure, it was a break on rising tax rates and a, and, a, and a response to stagflation, but it also kind of like reset the political landscape, right, by, by dramatically lowering tax rates. The Strategic Defense Initiative, you know, we forget mm-hmm. it because it's caught up in the Cold War. This was Reagan's idea. We were going to have an anti-ballistic missile shield. This is kind of new. This is a way. I do think there are places where the right can somehow uh, shape the future by creating unignorable facts on the ground. And I will say that Donald Trump's policy in the Middle East may be an example of this, uh, that by moving the embassy when no other president did it, by recognizing Israeli claims to the Golan Heights, no other president did it by basically defunding the Palestinian authority. No other president yeah. did it. He created these unignorable facts on the ground, which I think have contributed to some of the peace agreements between Israel and um, and its uh, neighboring, or in the case of Morocco, not so neighboring states. Um, all right, well, we could go on about all of that. <laughs> I, I particularly, I agree that people are trying to do the, make China the new Soviet Union. I think it will fail 
um, for reasons that you kind of touched on, but the, the main one being China does not offer an ideology that grabs the minds of young intellectuals and make them want to be spies. Uh, there are people who are spying for China, but they're doing it for cash, you know, <laughs> um, which is different, right? Um, and there is just something about, you know, yeah, China's atheistic, China's all those things the Soviet Union was, but it's just, it's, it's nationalism is so much more pronounced than it's Marxism. And it doesn't provide an ideological lodestar for true believers that can trigger that feeling of enemies within our midst who are subverting the constitution and our country. Um, not to say that we don't have enemies in our midst who are taking money from China and doing bad things, but it's just psychologically, I just think it plays differently. Um, and, but time will tell. doesn't mean that we can't whip up a lot of hysteria about China or, you know, I, I, I'm for more hawkishness towards China. I just don't think it'll look particularly much like it won't, it won't play domestically the way the Soviet Union. Yeah. Anymore. I mean, Xi Jinping hasn't told us that we will bury you yet. Right. Right. I mean, Chinese, the, the PLA is not occupying parts of Vietnam or parts of Korea or part, you know, where you would have this sense of the captive nations like we did during the cold war, where people, right. uh, you know, ethnic Americans had ancestors or rather relatives who were living under Soviet rule, right? You don't really have that now. You have it with some Uyghur Americans for sure. Um, but Tibet borders, you know, Tibet, right. But we don't have that kind of uh, interplay with American politics. I, I agree. I, we're not quite, we're not quite there yet, but I, I kind of see the beginnings of it. All right. Well, Matt Continetti, thank you so much for doing this. I know we went long, but you know, we're going to go dark next week and we wanted some, uh, to, to give people something that they could listen to on those long Christmas drives or whatnot. Um, very much looking forward to the book. We don't have a word yet about pub date or any of that kind of stuff, but progress is being made. Progress is being made. I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think it will and, be a book. There, and what is the working title? The latest title is the once and future, right? Okay. Cause coming up with titles, uh, sucks. It's, um, yes. But it's, it's terrible. But if the um, draft is complete, publishers are looking at it. That's what, that's what matters. How long is it? It's 150,000 words right now. So Excellent. Okay. All right. And how much of that is footnotes? Uh, well, I don't think the footnotes are counted. There's, there are 1,300 footnotes. Okay. Right. That way. Very exciting. All right, my friend, thank you very much for doing this. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, uh, glorious Kwanzaa, whatever floats your boat. Happy uh, Festivus, yeah. Thank, thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on soon enough. We'll definitely have you on, maybe for a whole seminar on the book. But uh, great to have you. Thank you, Jonah. Okay, so uh, I feel no need to apologize to listeners who listen to the whole thing, because one of the great things about podcasts is you don't listen to the whole thing if you don't want to listen to the whole thing. And anyone who stuck around for the full 90 or so minutes of that conversation wanted to be here. And so no apologies are needed. I suppose I could re-record the intro and say, sorry for what you're about to go through, except I have nothing to apologize for. I love talking to Matt. I love geeking out about this stuff, even if my brain isn't fully working today. Um, I do want to apologize to my friend Mike Bowen for uh, spacing his name for a bit there. Um, and uh, other than that, I think we're going to run some very exciting um, products that we recorded earlier in the year. I got to check on this. So we're not going to go completely dark like I suggested before um, next week. 
but uh, it is going to be a little different than normal. I will be recording the solo remnant tomorrow. Uh, who knows what I'll talk about? Maybe I'll try to talk through my very strange G file um, from yesterday, which if you were a, if you were a member of the dispatch community, you would be able to read. It covers the waterfront from I pencil um, to uh, Murray Rothbard's fable of the shoes to the idolatry of uh, a big segment of the Trump GOP. The only thing in terms of the bingo card that you would expect from me is there was no immunitize the Eschaton or uh, Eric Vogelin references in general, but uh, it's a bit of a journey for which um, I apologize to the people who wanted more rank punditry on that one. Uh, I just wanted to get that stuff out of me for some reason. And other than that, uh, things are going great. Next year is going to be very exciting. Your support means the world to us. If uh, you haven't become a paid subscriber, paid member to the dispatch yet, this would be a great time to do it. Start the next year right. Um, help us build on what we're doing. And, um, and keep me gamefully employed, which would be great too. Uh, other than that, I want to thank, he can't talk, but I want to thank, uh, Nicholas Pompello for all the hard work he's done this year. And of course, Caleb, our producer, who's not here right now, but he'll be listening to this eventually. Um, it's been a trying year for everybody. Try to launch a startup amidst the pandemic and a total fecal festival of a, a political meltdown. Um, and you create some really specific challenges, but, uh, everyone's put in an enormous amount of hard work and we're all grateful for it. So with that, uh, everybody stay safe, hang in there till the vaccine. And, um, actually, I don't know why I'm doing this big goodbye. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow. So goodbye. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.